Hello and welcome to Country Stride, the podcast dedicated to the landscapes, people and heritage of Cumbria and the Lake District. And a special welcome to our annual end of year review, where we unwrap a selection box of our favourite clips from the year past, reflect on conversations that have stuck in the mind, conversations that have changed our minds, and conversations that have made us smile and occasionally wipe away a bit of dust stuck in our eyes. I'm here in a cottage near Skelethbridge, snow on the Coniston Fells, tea brewing, and I'm in the company of, for the fourth time, outdoors writer and editor, John Manning. Hello, John. Hiya. And author and illustrator, Mark Richards. Hello, Mark. Oh, hello, David. Great to be back again. Highlight of the year. And it's looking rather fab out there, right? Wow. It is indeed. Had the rays effect today. As, in, as you go over the Denmail Rays, you get this change in climate almost. Thirlmere and all towards Keswick, lost in fog and frost. You come over the Rays, hey presto, it's all glorious sunshine. And coming into the Langdale Valley, there's no frost at all. How is it your neck of the woods, John? Um, it's uh, all deep and crisp and even at the moment. Is it um, really? Oh, wow. Plenty of snow yesterday, nothing more overnight. But driving over here this morning, as you say, the Coniston Fells... White, wonderful, beautiful, very Christmassy. So over the next hour and a bit, we'll sift through 20 episodes and 21 hours of recordings that we've made this year, from as far-flung as Alston, Gosforth, Chapleydale, Borrowdale, and the other Borrowdale. We'll be talking dialect, Dentdale, and dynamite. We'll visit copper mines, Coniston Water, and Keswick's Moot Hall. We'll reflect on the precarious business of hill farming and ask how much tension there really is between farming heritage and biodiversity. I'll be quizzing John and Mark about their knowledge of the fells in a brand new quiz for Countrystride entitled Wainwright or Wayne Wrong. And we'll hear from, among others, Lee Schofield, Mark Hatton, Libby Robinson, Alison Park, Steve Birkinshaw, Jean Scott-Smith, Steve Dickinson and Donald Angus. But before all of that, we're going to open with a selection of clips celebrating Cumbrian dialect. In this compilation, we'll hear from Steve Dickinson about dialect clues laid into the landscape. Then we'll hear from the inimitable Gene Scott-Smith and Donald Angus talking Cumbrian weather. Next, a certain Mark Richards discusses the word wold as we pass Boot of the Wold on the Dales Highway. Before Wild Horse Water mainman Lee Schofield talks about ghosts in the landscape. Finally, we'll return to Donald and Jean, who try to identify what makes Cumbrian dialect and phrasing so unique. There's some garths up near Gosforth, Wingarth, Between Guards, Guards End, Ben Garth over near, near the Wasdale, Gates Garth down at Sandson Bridge, and then just down near the coast, we'll talk about in a minute, near Urton, there's Green Garth Hall. And also, while we're on the subject of names... There are some that are indicative of a completely different kind of activity. Um, just to the north-west of us here, we're here, mm-hmm. about a kilometre in that direction on the rise, is Gallows Hill, and then Sorrow Stones, which is a farm just behind the trees over here, is referred to as being a place where people who were hung got their final drink ah. before they were taken to the scaffold. And just to the south of Sorrow Stones is Hanging Howe. The landscape redolent of execution. Grim, grimness. Yeah. Can I do some of don't weather? <laughs> well, I could do. Uh, and the thing is, when I worked for the Lake District National Park as a ranger, 
I once thought, well, it wouldn't it be a good idea to put the weather forecast up in dialect? <laughs> Much to the disgust of, of course, my employers, the National Park, but I did. And I put on something like this. Weather forecast and conditions under hoof. <laughs> right. General remarks. It'll be a gay, clarty morning with a good showers of yellow water. Then there'll be one or two glisky periods later in day becoming Lund and given a rocky morning. Wind. Gay strong for Pennines at first, gone round bit afternoon, then dropping out. In terms of that wonderful uh, weather forecast, uh, what uh, prevented it becoming uh, the, the regular thing? Well, to put it in about three words, that uh, nobody understood it. Wald, <laughs> <laughs> it means the hills with trees on. A wald originally was clothed in trees. That's interesting. It is interesting, yes. And, of course, we're walking around Boot of the Wold, which <laughs> is a great name. And then on the other side of the valley, you'll see Wold Fell, which our sheep also, if they weren't on one side, they were on, we called it Warfall, but it's Wold Fell. Yeah, there you are. Higher up, I noticed there was evidence of peat cuttings. Are these peat-cutting dwellings where they stored peat? I don't think they are. So lots of ruined buildings like these dotted across the lakes are peat houses that were, were used for drying the peat turfs that were cut from the fell. But the fact that this near one, um, which is high loop, it has a window, um, and the other one, which is low loop, um, has sort of two rooms, suggests that these were much more likely places that people slept, that people lived temporarily. That combined with their name, high and low loop, L-O-U-P, um, suggests to me that these have a, a very different use and that they were used by shepherds to protect the flocks that were up on the hill from wolves. Right. So loop, um, as in lupine, could be a remnant of either Latin period, um, you know, the Roman or the Norman period, more likely the Norman period. Um, loop is the word that the French use for wolf. And there's a number of features on Mardell Common which kind of support that theory. A little while back we passed Woof Crag, which is a derivation of wolf. Uh, and it seems likely to me that that was a place where it was named that way because wolves perhaps bred there. It was a den site for wolves. A little way over the hill there is an Ulthwaite Rig, um, which is another wolf-derived place name. And just behind us in the sort of the, the bowl over there, there are large old sheep pens, stone sheep pens. But what it is really, it's a lazy way of speaking, isn't it, really? Well, yes, it it's is. It's cutting things down. Mm. Like for Walthwaite, Warweight. Yeah. Seaweight. You're knocking the TH. You're knocking it off, you're, you're yeah. cutting it down. It, yeah. It's a lazy yeah. way, really, of talking. I think words like gan, as gan yam, or as yeah. gan to skill. Yeah. You know, going, but it's cut short, it's pronounced different. It's Donald Angus there, reflecting on what makes Cumbrian dialect unique. And um, recording with Donald and Jean was a great joy wasn't it i mean aside from their wonderful accents just to have that bounty of knowledge of a language which is really disappearing as we speak there's very few practitioners left i think a bit of a renaissance the dialect society actually held their agm for all the dialect societies in the uk at shapwell's hotel this year so cumbria was able to really champion um, our own 
dialect. It's this ability to be natural in one's pronunciation, yantan, tether, mether, pip, that kind of flow of words, setra, letra, hovra, dovra, dick, bump it. What's bump it? I think that's 20. Nope, that's 15. <laughs> bump it is 15. Gig it. 20? Gig is 20. Us. But there again... <laughs> this is like it, mastermind. It is, <laughs> but there, there's about six different expressions for counting sheep in Cumbria. But a lot of them expand all over the country, so they all date from a period just after the Romans left, and they're one of the few things that have survived the language change because you had to be able to count your sheep. Yeah. Because they weren't written down. They were expressions of the local farming community, the shepherds. It's an oral tradition, isn't it, really, in a way that folk music has its own oral tradition. In one area, you get a tup. Threlkeld, you would get a tup. Uh, if you go towards Coniston or Cockermouth, it would be a tip. Ah. So the subtle changes like that occurred. I referred to this um, book I have at home. It's called The Westmoreland and Cumberland Dialects. Dialogues, poems, songs and ballads by various writers in the uh, Westmoreland and Cumbrian dialects, published in 1839. But a very snappy title. Yeah, yeah, it's punchy, punchy. And I was quite surprised to find a lot of the Cumbrian dialect words were what we used as kids in West Yorkshire. You know, So right? Lakin playing out and Lig to lay down. You know, if you were ligged out in the playground, somebody had flattened you. Um, <laughs> your mates would come round in an evening and chap on your door and say, are you lecking out, you know? Uh, what would you call your dad? Uh, sir. <laughs> <laughs> so you weren't Feather. Feather is the local Feather. One. Feather. They're definitely, my dad was definitely no Feather. Well, bear in mind that Featherstone takes its name from being the father's stone. But one, one thing I did find that I, I thought was quite interesting was the number of words we have locally for walking donald will have to forgive me if i get some of the pronunciations wrong in here um but a bit like the eskimos have a thousand words for snow <laughs> we have a staffel stable or stoop uh, which is to walk as if lost or drunk dadge to walk danglingly or saunteringly howder to walk heavily kevel <laughs> to walk clumsily port to walk heavily mazel to walk as if stupefied. There we go, we're drinking again. Fudge, <laughs> to walk as if tired, and, and so on and so on. At Herpel, uh, now that's to walk as if lame or to limp. Mm. Well, you're, you're looking good, fettle, to my eyes. <laughs> <laughs> well, fettle, that's another great word. That's another word that's local, but we'd also use in Yorkshire. If you're fettling something, you're sorting it out, aren't you? Or yeah. mending it, repairing it. Yeah. Or if you're in good fettle, you're looking healthy. And the other thing that came out of that selection of clips was this evocation of ghosts in the landscape. So this is names like Ulfa yeah. recounting the kind of history of wolves, um, old scarf. Uh, that Lee Schofield indicated there. He uses these in his book, uh, Wild Fell, to talk about botany and a fauna that's been lost, effectively. Uh, and the clues, and again, Mark brought this up uh, about Boot of the Wold there, and the suggestion of ancient woodland, which is now gone. So how do we know what the landscapes looked like in the past, well, we can do peat samples and we can look at pollen and stuff like that, but we can also just look at a map, which is really interesting, isn't it? And when we walked on the Dales Highway, Chris Grogan, who we were with, 
she was able to name lots of other wolds, wold fell, which she called waffle, um, locally. There's all these clues, you know, and we can see this treed landscape in which wolves ran. You know, there's this kind of romance about all of this, isn't it? Mm, yeah. oh, look, Pike refers to wolves as well, but that's the playground of wolves on Skidder. Sort of a hint back there to the lake in that John brought up there. Welpside on Helvellyn, yeah. that's another... Yeah reference to wolves a playing ground of the whelps the young wolves one of the really interesting places that we walked past with lee schofield was uh, captain welter's bog <laughs> and i don't think we don't quite know who captain welter is do we no not really it's between Southside pike and Branstree. Welter, of course, is a, a coombe on the other side of Horswater. You've got Velter Crags. That's which, true. Which yeah. is Icelandic. Uh, it just means the curved crag. Picking up from the Dales Highway, the next selection of clips focuses on one of my great passions, and one of yours as well, John, long-distance yeah. walking. Uh, so I ticked off two long-distance paths this year, the Cumbria Way and the Dales Highway, and it's a recording from the Dales Highway with co-founder Chris Grogan that the next compilation opens with her articulating the magic of long-distance walking. Uh, next, we meet a couple on the Pennine Way, just north of Alston, talking about the simplicity of through-hiking. And finally, long-distance running with Steve Birkinshaw's epic run of the 214 and his description of the run home to Keswick Moot Hall. Here's Chris Grogan. There's so many factors, isn't there? Sometimes it's the weather, sometimes it's where you stay, sometimes it's the people you meet, and you stay to mind. But one of the things I really like about long-distance walking is that within a very short time... Even on a lovely day walk like this, you're thinking, oh, there'll be emails when I get home and do I need to put a wash on and what's the tea? But when you're doing a trek, it goes. You do one thing. You get up, eat, walk, go to the pub. <laughs> it's just a lovely, lovely um, pattern. Mindfulness before the term was invented. There's something that concentrates your mind on having one thing to do, which is to put one foot in front of the other basically and it allows your mind to just clear of all the rubbish that chunters and chatters and monkey brains around most of the time you begin to relax into your environment and you begin to just travel in the landscape and if you've committed yourself to walking for a week or a fortnight or whatever it happens to be you don't even think too much about the hardship or the weather because you're committed. You're just doing it. And I find it unbelievably relaxing, physically challenging and mentally relaxing. And that is just such a wonderful combination. I think for me, it's just a challenge. Uh, I like the simplicity of long-distance through-hiking. Um, you just sort of get up, you walk, you look for food, you get your water, and it's very simple. But for me personally, I love being immersed in nature. I'm quite a keen bird watcher. Um, I just like being in nature every day for sort of a couple of months. It's very special for me. So I guess also uh, being in nature, but then you have 
days like this where it's blustery in your face and definitely the Pennine Way recommendation do not do what we're doing north to south yes. definitely the prevailing, the prevailing winds is not just for canoeists and those on the water do it from south to north you can see the people around you cheering you mentally you believe now you know now that you can actually make it and you can beat the record. You've got it in your grasp. What did it feel like? Describe all those fells you were mopping up then with glee. You know, it's, it's a great feel. I remember running down to Newlands Halls. It must have been like 30, 40 people running with me. I stopped for like 10 minutes there. And then, as you say, just six fells to go from that point. But I, I knew I was going to break the record. It was just a matter of going out and enjoying it. And it was a beautiful day as well. Um, it's like five or six o'clock in the evening and it was just enjoying the last three or four hours with a great group of friends and people that have been with me the whole week. So whatever, there's sort of Robinson, Hinescarth, Dalehead, down to Dalehead Tarn, and then up along the ridge, High Spy, Maiden Moor, and then the final one, the Cat Bells to finish. So that was the 214. Someone had a, a bottle of Wainwright beer for me at the top of there. <laughs> I had a quick sip. <laughs> How amazing. And then, yeah, just run down from there along the tracks and the roads, the Moot Hall, and there were literally hundreds of people oh. at the Moot Hall cheering me in, which was amazing. You know, oh. it's it's weird because, you know, fell running such a solitary sport and yes. then all these friends and family all there cheering me in. You know, oh. it's been a week of highs and lows and it was just finished with an amazing high. Oh, wow. And then my family up on the steps of the Moot Hall with me mindfulness before the term was invented what a lovely quote there from chris grogan summing up her view on the magic of long distance walking and i mean john you've not only done a lot of this in your life uh you love your long distance walks i found it beautiful listening to chris because it was almost like listening into a mirror a lot of what she was saying i can relate to so much for me it goes a little bit beyond the the simplicity and the mindfulness my long distance walks have been few and far between in recent years, you know, since starting a family. What I appreciate them for now, and I always have to, to a big degree, is that when you're in a working environment and you don't get a break and it's quite stressful, there's a toxicity builds up inside you, um, a spiritual toxicity, if you like, and you need to purge it. For me, walking is how I cleanse my spirit, if you like, in that same way. Um, is that the same as mindfulness? I don't know if it's exactly the same description. And I realised that donkeys years ago when I was part of my life, when I worked for a magazine called The Great Outdoors, I did quite a lot of trekking overseas in Nepal and Peru and places like that. They were usually two-week treks, and then I got this fantastic golden ticket of a three-week trek through the High Atlas in Morocco. And halfway through that, I was still going to bed at night and thinking about work. And I thought to myself, after a week and a half, I need more. Three weeks isn't going to be enough. And that's when I took off on the Pacific Crest Trail in mm. the United States. I think I'm getting to a stage where I need that again now. I need, yes. I need that purging. Um, it begs an interesting question, actually, which is how many days does it take to kind of get into the real proper magic of a long-distance walk? I think it's over two weeks, you see, before you get that serious transition and of course, most long distance footpaths in this country are less than that. And that's not to say there's not a huge amount of joy and satisfaction and pleasure you can get from the Cumbria Way, for example, which uh, I did in four days, yeah. or indeed the Dales Highway, which is absolutely magic. I, I think you already get a bit of that, but I think something qualitatively changes 
when you're committed to that three, four, five week thing. And indeed, if you go even longer, it changes all over again. Of all the long distance <laughs> trails I've done, I, I've never walked one in one go. Mm. And that is uh, one of my misses in life. I think you can still do it, can't you, Mark? Oh, I, yes. I'll have to ask the missus if I can. <laughs> I should ask you that. If you could choose one long distance trail mm. then to walk from beginning to end, which, which do you think you'd Would go for? Would it be? Ooh, gosh. Um, I'd probably end up in Scotland somewhere. Right. Because I think uh, Scotland is it's all about wildness. And, I, and it wouldn't necessarily be the West Highland Way because you've got too many people on that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I'd love to explore the uh, Hebrides and all the western fringes, magical areas. I think, David, you've been on the Caithness coast and that was magical, wasn't it? Yeah, there's a John O'Groats trail up there, um, about seven days yeah, it's good, actually, because that's a neglected coast, I think, for walkers. And outdoorsy types tend to gravitate to the West Coast, don't we? But it's really, really good. And it's quite an important route, actually, for Land's End John O'Groats walkers who tend to walk the West Highland Way, Great Glen, uh, to Inverness. And then the old question was, well, what do you do then? And in the old <laughs> days, you had to walk up the A9 and the A99. Um, local lad uh, called Jay uh, recognised that there was a missing link there and has devoted all his energies for the last two decades to making this new trail along the cliff tops of Caithness and Sutherland. Right, let's move on to something totally different. Uh, Mark, this is one of your choices here. We've got two slices of Cumbrian industrial history. The first clip features regular guest Mark Hatton with a vaguely terrifying description of Coppermines Valley and one of its mines in its heyday. And the second is Peter Rook describing the final years of the viaduct that once took the Jellicoe special trains north across the Solway. The doctor who was employed, or the surgeon who was employed by the mine in the late 1840s and into the 1850s, a chap called Dr Alexander Gibson, he actually had quite a lot of spare time. Um, Because actually the miners, might surprise you to know, were a relatively healthy bunch. Uh, There was relatively few and far between accidents in these mines. So he had time to write a guidebook, something that you will be able to very closely relate to. He wrote a book called Ramblings and Ravings Around Conestone. And one of the guided walks that he talks you through is to come up to the copper mines and he suggests you go to the officers and ask for a guided tour of the mines. And he described in this book wonderfully how if you ask nicely, they will give you some old clothes to wear, they will give you some candles and they will take you to the entrance to the mine and they will show you in. And he talks wonderfully about walking with a stooped head so you don't knock your block off um, into the tunnel. And then he talks about going down a series of ladders, thousand foot of ladders or more to get down into the working area of the mine then. And then he talks about being in the underworld and seeing these shady creatures working down there who are the miners. He describes them banging huge hammers onto metal rods to drill holes into the solid rock and then how they then pack that with gunpowder and then put a fuse into the gunpowder and then put some clay and some small stones into what's known as stem it and then they light that fuse and leg it back up the tunnel and then they wait for the explosion and then they go back and see what they've done you know how much rock they've blasted onto the floor 
Now, one of the injuries, the common injury, the most common cause of fatalities or your serious uh, disabilities at this mine is explosive accidents. And he describes how if you set a charge and you light the fuse, you should never go back to it if it doesn't go off. But the miners ignore rules like that. They regularly say, oh, what's going on? I load the fuse, but it hasn't gone off. I've left it a few minutes. I'm going to go back and have a look to see what's going on. And the typical injury was when the miner looked into the hole that he drilled, and just as he was holding a candle up to the hole and looking in, the charge went off. So the fuse had still been smouldering, and the blast would be sufficient to either kill him outright, or if it didn't kill him outright, it would tend to take his hand off that he had held up to the hole and take his eye out. And we see um, records of miners who are permanently disabled by losing a hand and, and losing an eye. And typically then they had to find another job. So the, the Coniston postman had a hook for a hand and one eye. And the really seriously disabled, and it's very sad to hear this, but they would go to Kendall where they would literally beg on the streets without arms or eyes because Kendall was the industrial town, all the shoe factories and what have you, where people had sufficient cash to maybe give a few pennies to somebody begging on the streets of Kendall. It proved to be very useful in World War One. So the, the Jellicoe specials, the coal trains, going up to Scarpa Flow to uh, service the fleet up there, they were going over that line 24-7. But as, as you say, after World War One, it fell into a bit of disrepute and then Carlisle was then seen as being a hub rather than a bottleneck. Everything went into Carlisle. So the, the railways just stopped using the bridge. Uh, and, uh, yes, the good burgers of Annan would wander over the bridge on a Sunday for a Sunday lunch, a pint, a kiss and a cuddle with their lady friends in Bowness, and then trying to stagger back in the evening. A number of them fell off the bridge never to be seen again. So the government insisted the railway company put a sentry box on the bridge. There was one gentleman there whose sole job was to try to halt uh, groups of marauding Scotsmen who'd, who'd had uh, a couple of beers from going over the bridge. He had no chance. So in the end, uh, the government insisted that the bridge had to be demolished. And when they tried to demolish it, they found that the metalwork was, was so good they had to use explosives to take it down. The metalwork was then exported to Japan, who used it to build their high seas fleet. So there's bits of the Solway Viaduct that were used against the, the Americans in World War II. Mark, there we go. That was your choice. You wanted to talk a little bit about the railway there. And I mean, what a feat of engineering that was anyway. And I love that story about its uh, demise. <laughs> the Solway Junction Railway was a, a shortcut because, as Peter mentioned, Carlisle was a bottleneck. There were seven companies taking their trains into there. So there was always a hold-up. So they managed to save 20 minutes. <laughs> this 20 is like minutes. HS2, really. <laughs> By taking a line across the marshes and over the Solway. And it was the longest bridge in the world when it was built. And it sped iron ore to the north and coal from Ayrshire south. It's like all these railways, they brought wealth to areas that were otherwise were unconnected. Yeah. That one was a quaint one, really. But even when they tried to get rid of it, it had terrible difficulty in demolishing it. Because it, it was so well built. So well yeah. built. That Victorian way of building things was phenomenal. They thought things were going to last forever. What amazed me, because I, I read up a little bit about it for today, and... It was the fact that it was damaged by ice coming yeah. down the river. Yeah. Well, bear in mind the word Firth is the Norwegian fjord. Yeah. <laughs> but that was yeah. a very shallow fjord. Yeah. <laughs>
But I mean, to me, it conjures up an image of the mountain rivers in places like Alaska thawing in the spring and yeah. all this ice coming down as the salmon are starting to swim up. Peter Rook mentions about the early day travel because there were pack horses before that moved things around. Then the canals came in. You've got the Ulverston Canal. Yep. And there was a plan to have a canal from Maryport to Carlisle. But they only built the first bit, which is Port Carlisle to Carlisle, which in fact aimed to get the goods out of Carlisle onto barges and down to Liverpool and so on. Yeah. But then when George Stevenson was employed to create a railway from Newcastle to Carlisle, it gave them a conduit to barge things out to get all the metal that they were producing in Newcastle to the west coast, down to Liverpool, down to Bristol, much more efficiently than had previously been possible. So that was 1838, that railway was created. And it was the first coast-to-coast railway in the world. It was what made Newcastle grow very rapidly. And it was just having that little canal connection that made all the difference. And uh, so when you go to Port Carlisle, which was Fisher's Cross in its day, little fishing port, it became the vital place. We're moving on to... One of my choices now, we're heading down memory lane, down to London, and a journey made by the fabulous Libby Robinson to buy her second fell pony. There was a friend who had Exmoor ponies. She was a breeder near Wimbledon Common. This was 1991. This friend said, you've got to go and see this pony. It's going to go to Southall Market. A lot of ponies go through there, and they usually go for meat. It's an absolutely lovely fell pony. And I get the train, go into London, get on the tube, get the tube to Putney Bridge, Wandsworth, find where these ponies are. It's just an an Edwardian street, and there's all these horses and ponies in this space, and there's 35 horses and ponies in there. Crammed in there? All crammed in there. And introduced to this fell pony by Matthew. Um, Matthew, young boy, he's 16. Now, Matthew had been earning a living pizza delivering with Precious. So, pizza delivering pony. But he didn't want to do it with a pony anymore. He wanted a motorbike. Oh, he wanted a Lamborghini. <laughs> <laughs> so, what happens is that uh, Precious, she'd gone to London as a two-year-old and had been broken in and trained as a driving pony. She hadn't been in a field since then. She had lived in London. It took three people to harness her up and put her into the vehicle because she was uncomfortable. As soon as I got, and I was watching this, as soon as I got in the vehicle with Matthew, she just pulled herself together. And she just was amazing. We went out through the door, we drove down the street, we went over Putney Bridge, we went round Hyde Park Corner, all those (laughs) lanes of traffic, and she knew exactly what she was doing. She knew which side of the road in the lanes she had to stand so that she didn't have any exhaust fumes going up her nose. She knew the traffic light sequences. She knew how to get ready when it got to amber, right we go. And she just, it's brilliant, just a brilliant pony. But uh, when I took her back and put her in a field at home and uh, I just watched her at the corner of my eye, she stood in the middle of the field and 20 minutes later she was still standing in the middle of the field. She didn't know what to do. She didn't know what to do with space. No. She'd forgotten how to roll. She had to re-acclimatise herself to living in a field. 
Isn't that lovely? A lovely voice, a lovely story. And that trip, actually, Mark, was a real highlight of my year. John, we'll give you a little bit of behind the scenes on this one. Please do. <laughs> uh, Mark and myself turned up at the farm, Libby's farm, uh, down there in the Bay Gorge. Uh-huh. And we were told that we were going to be driven onto the fell on a kind of four by four vehicle. I do think that Libby probably listens to this. So I will say this um, uh, in the context of we had the most fabulous day, but I am pleased to still be alive. (laughs) This this thing was going up this kind of 45 degrees at times on an angle. And that was when it was level, it was 45 degrees. (laughs) It got steeper. I was kind of terrified. How did you feel? About I, it was the most amazing. And in fact, my dear wife, Helen, she came too, and we it's clung true. onto the thing, and we bounced all <laughs> over the place. Uh, going up was desperate. Coming down was even more desperate. But it was amazing, and we all survived. And, and, and the sensation of coming upon these calm... Well, I was going to say, yeah, that was the transition, yeah. So you'd done this vaguely traumatic trip, um, and then wind, and it was freezing. It was one of those blisteringly cold days. (laughs) And then we came into this little hollow, which, of course, the fell ponies had picked, right? And this calm. You're right, Mark. That is absolutely the right word. And I don't know whether it's that kind of sense of that age-old continuity of seeing these beasts in their natural home. Or whether it's just the presence of being with ponies, and I think there is something about that. Right. Oh, goodness. The other postscripts I will add is they kept trying to eat the microphone. <laughs> <laughs> Libby's story is so wonderful. She couldn't buy anything locally. She couldn't afford any land for her ponies. So she went to, she emigrated to France so she could set up her sanctuary for the Cumbrian fell pony, which she thought needed to be preserved as a breed went to france and then i think the opportunity came finally where they could get a tiny bit of land and they drove all these ponies back across the channel in one of these big horse boxes and she describes heartbreakingly the moment that the fell ponies are let back onto their home turf and she sees them running off home and it's, oh, goodness. Wow. <laughs> right, now we've got an exciting new innovation now for our end-of-year podcast. Uh, this is Wainwright or Wayne Wrong. Oh. Uh, so the way this works is I will read out a short description from the collected works of Alfred Wainwright that describes a fell. And all you have to do is identify which fell it is. Okay, it's that simple. So I'm going to fall flat on my face on this. You'll probably win, don't you, Frank? No, not a chance. Not a chance. Right, I've given each of you uh, a buzzer of sorts. John, your buzzer. That's nice. That's two uh, egg cups. Mark, your buzzer. (laughs) (laughs) There's some mild rules to this. If you buzz in before I finish the quote and you get the answer right, or Wainwright, then you get two points. If you buzz in after I finish, you get one point. If you get it wrong, if you get the fell name wrong, you get deducted a point. Right, and the, there is a prize, and the prize is an unopened jar of Cumbrian rum butter uh, that was gifted to I us. I love rum butter. Well, you don't get to buzz in just to win that. Mark. That's not how it works at all. But uh, this is from Grassmere Gingerbread. So Joanne, who we um, interviewed on the most recent podcast, she gave us a lovely jam of Cumbrian rum butter. So a lot to play for, not least professional pride. Okay, so let's begin. First up, nice and easy. And here's the quote. This fell may well be the best known of all Lakeland fells and possibly even the best known hill in the country. 
General... Right, John. Hello, then. I'm afraid oh, that's no. not right. It's so fell gets... Pike. Oh, you're both wrong. So there you're both go. Wayne wrong. You both have minus one. <coughs> Mark, you could have listened to the whole thing. I'll tell you I what, haven't I'll... heard it all yet. Yeah, yeah you're, <laughs> racing, you're racing me here, John. Okay, I'm going to complete the quote. Generations of wagonette and motor coach tourists have been tutored to recognise its appearance oh. in the Grasmere landscape. Helm Crag. That was Helm Crag. There we go. So you're both on minus one. Let's try a second question. This fell stands unabashed and unashamed in the midst of a circle of much loftier fells, like a shaggy terrier in the company of foxhounds. Oh, this is a classic Wainwright quote, this. Oh, God, this is a bit disappointing. Mm. Dodd. Mm, I'm afraid not, Mark. You're on minus two now. I'll quit while I'm ahead and I'll stay on minus one. Okay, the answer to that is haystacks. Oh! Right. Silly me, yes. Okay, next up. Heed not the disparating criticisms that have been written from time to time, often by learned men who ought to know better about this grand old mountain. It's an easy climb, yes. Its slopes are smooth and grassy, yes. It has no frightening precipices, agreed. But are they failings at all? I'll reassert the clues here. Easy slopes... And Grand Old Mountain. Old Mountain. They're all old. Yes, they are old. What's the oldest? Skidder. I think you need to buzz in if you want to answer. Skidder. That is correct. I think he's right. Okay, so Mark is on. (laughs) You're both on minus one. (laughs) You pulled one back. I'll pull the minus one back. Okay, here we go. I think Mark might get this one. This is the odd man out. This gentle hill rises beyond the circular perimeter of the northern fells, detached and solitary, like a dunce set apart from the class. Binsey. He's on fire now. Fantastic. Mark has zero <laughs> points now. Uh, and John, you're on zero mi- minus one. <laughs> okay, next up. Nice and easy. This fell is one of the great favourites, a family fell where grandmothers and infants can climb the heights together, a place beloved. Its popularity is well-deserved. Its shapely top knot attracts the eye, offering a steep but obviously simple scramble to the small summit. Above Derwent Water. Capels. That's a good mark, well done. Very good. I did add in the bit about Derwent Water. That's not... There'll be Wainwright aficionados listening to this and crying into their beer. <laughs> I think... I, <laughs> I could do that, I could do that. Why, why are they so right. slow? <laughs> <laughs> okay... There is little on these extensive grass slopes to provide even passing interest, and nothing at all to encourage a visit. It's a great quote, though. Blimey. Well, I, I can answer it, but... Um... Oh, can you? Okay. You must. Right. Okay, Lankrig. No, that's Ooh. incorrect. That was Mungrisdale Common, so well, well. back to zero points, Mark. <laughs> even Stephen's here, John. There's a bit of a cryptic clue in here. This is very nice, this description. A thousand people or more reach the summit of this fell every year, yet it is probably true to say that no visitor to Lakeland ever announced at breakfast that this fell was his day's objective, and if he did, his listeners would assume a slip of the tongue. It's quite a good clue, this, actually. Oh. Slip of the tongue. Tongue. Well, tongue's the clue. Uh, Oh, dear. Troutbeck tongue. No, oh, oh dear. 
I was, I was, I was thinking of John, it's, it's, it's risky to answer is, is it. Is heart sop don that's got a tongue issuing from it? Oh no, I, I'm afraid you both got that wrong. <laughs> Wayne wrong. Um, if the answer is Green Gable, oh, that's a great Green answer. Gable. Yes, yeah. yes, yeah, yes indeed. That's a very good question. John, I think possibly this one for you. A vast seascape makes a glorious sweep across the southern horizon, ranging from the Pennines to Black Coombe and further west to the Isle of Man. <laughs> Most people, not being fellwalkers, fix their eyes in this direction, and squeals of joy announce the sighting of Calder Hall Power Station and Blackpool Tower. This book does not deign to cater for such tastes. Must be Coniston all man. That's right, and you got in before the end of the quote, so you get two points. Oh, oh brilliant. Yes. There you are. That's good. That puts you on... Zero, and Mark, Mark is now on minus one. It's all to play for as we come to number nine. Nine of ten. Don't worry, the end is nigh. Might be pleased about that. Not many fells can be described as beautiful, but the word fits this fell, especially so when viewed from Estale. The lower slopes on this flank climb steeply from the tree-lined curves of the River Esk in a luxurious covering of bracken. Higher is a wide belt of heather, and finally spring grey turrets and ramparts of rocks to a neat and... Heart of fell. Oh my goodness. Steaming into the lead with two points. (laughs) Final question. (sighs) This fell is an abrupt ridge of limestone on a north-south axis soaring boldly above the flat marshes and mosses of the Kent estuary and is a parallel counterpart to the long cliff of Scout Scar across the alluvial... (laughs) Whitbarrow. Mark Richards. Yes. With Whitbarrow, correct. I knew the fell and I couldn't remember the name. <laughs> Wayne Wright. So, ah, uh, now this is all a bit awkward. <laughs> <laughs> the legend that is not Mark Richards. <laughs> I'm afraid second. on this occasion, uh, John Manning has won with t- two, two points to one. Congratulations, John. Yeah. You, you'll be able to take away that. Um, and I never got the butter. chance to play my uh, Mornington Crescent card. Mornington Crescent. Oh, goodness. Okay. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> Before the quiz, we were talking about Libby's ponies being let loose again on the fells. But it's not just ponies finding freedom on the fells. So many people have done so historically and continue to do so today. And in this next compilation, we have three clips about those who have embodied freedom, often by rejecting the cloying demands of society. So first up, we have Paul Flint talking about Arthur Ransom. Next, Matthew Entwistle, describing the revolutionary mixed-sex adventure holidays operated by Millican Dalton, the caveman of Borrowdale. And finally, there's a lovely story about Beatrix Potter, as recounted by Janet Edwards. And within the books, there are plenty of workmen-like people. You've got charcoal burners in the Lake District, hill farmers, boat builders... Uh, you've got uh, gillies in Scotland in Great Northern who were herding and looking after deer. Ransom had a great empathy with the working man. When he was young, he befriended gypsies and he befriended charcoal burners. And I'm sure that had a lot to do with his time in Russia also, um, seeing how the, uh, the people were treated, generally speaking, like underdogs in a lot of cases. And he wanted his writing to be very classless in a way. Part of the socialist ideals promoted equal rights for everybody, you know, for the for the common person. So Millican's holidays open to everybody, women included, which in this day and age might sound unsurprising. unsurprising. So he advertised his holidays in votes for women, and they also advertised in the suffragette. Now, don't forget, 
this was a period well before women had the right to vote, which didn't come till 1918. This didn't go without any unconcern from the rest of society. Guardians of traditional values deemed his activities or his activities gave the potential for loose behaviour and they didn't want to have any part with that. Millican saw common sense and he persisted with his mixed-sex camping trips. The final story book, which was published in 1912, just before she married William in 1913, was The Tale of Pigling Bland. That tells the story of Pigling Bland and the little female pig called Pigwig. There is a picture in the book with the two of them standing there, hand in hand, looking over the Langdale Fells, and she turns to him and she says... Let's run away over the hills and far away. Beatrix, throughout her life, she corresponded with children. But one letter in particular stands out in my mind, and that was from a little girl called Margaret, and Margaret corresponded with her on a regular basis. And Beatrix sent Margaret a copy of the tale of Pigling Bland and told her that she'd become married to uh, William Healis and where she was living at Castle Cottage in Surrey. Margaret, at the age of 10, wrote back and said to her, is the picture of Pigling Bland looking over the Lakeland Fells and the statement underneath on the page when it says, let's run away over the hills and far away, is that you and William in that picture? And Beatrix categorically denied that it was. Perhaps, maybe, she was thinking about herself and William when she put that little quote in that little book, but no one will ever know. Three lovely clips there. And they're all loosely related to working people, I suppose, uh, even if Beatrix Potter came from wealth. She crucially rejected that wealth, completely rejected that wealth, really, um, to become a, a working woman and a country woman. Famously, she didn't have electricity in her house. Electricity had come through to the village, but she wouldn't have anything to do with it. Um, and she didn't want an inside loo, anything like that. I mean, she was very proud to become this back-to-her-roots country girl, wasn't she? And finding that freedom among the rolling hills and meadows of Lakeland, which Millican Dalton does exactly the same thing, doesn't he? He rejects a life in the city to come on and live up here. Yeah. as an insurance broker. And Arthur Ransom, he was a journalist, of course, but there was a sense with him settling down here that he'd kind of found freedom and peace among the fells. And I, there's so many stories like this that we come across with Country Stride, particularly well-known, famous people from Cumbria's past, where the draw of this landscape gives them something tangible that then gets written into culture. Two of these examples is literature. Yeah. And one of them, and actually, Mark, you'd pick this, you wanted this clip picked, this extraordinary moment in time where women become equals in the climbing world long before the rest of society is caught up because of Millican Dalton. He not only crafts the adventure holiday, creates this whole new genre of holiday, he also invents lightweight walking clothing. I mean, what a man, right? This is incredible. I can understand where Matthew Entwistle comes from with his passion with Millican Dalton. He was a man apart. He was sort of 100 years ahead of his time, uh, 50 years anyway. He saw that everybody had the spirit of the outdoors in them if they were given the licence and the encouragement. And you didn't have to be part of a particular social order. Finding real adventure with fellow people who 
shared that wish and desire to be a part of this magical environment. And the Lake District was there for everyone. Milligan was a remarkable man, a, a most peculiar man in many ways, but a man who loved debate and would mm. talk to anybody and formal mountain groups and people who came in their charabangs couldn't understand at all and wouldn't want to associate with, and yet he associated with everybody. Well, there's a lot of politics going on here, which is quite interesting. This proceeds by a long way, things like the um, Kinder Mass Trespass, but he was a very committed socialist and got into these very lengthy debates and actually lost quite a few friends for the vehemence (laughs) of his viewpoints. Um, But really, I mean, that's crucial to who he is and the egalitarian nature of these holidays. It was unheard of that men and women would mix up on their holidays. You know, there'd there'd be plenty of women-only walking groups. But to mix them up, this was an act, a genuinely revolutionary act from a man who loved a bit of revolution. Fascinating character. And of course it gets carried on, right? I think you can follow that thread through to... Benny Rossman. Yeah, yeah, it's that era where I think it finds another major wave of expression. And my question is, and I'm trying to commission a book at the moment about this, is where have our working-class walkers gone? Yeah. Right, we left Beatrix Potter musing about Pigling Bland's future before we took a bit of a diversion into the politics of walking. Uh, we'll start our next set of clips with her and Janet Edwards again, talking about her respect among the farming community. After that, a wonderful story about the outgunned truant officer of Dentdale, as told by Chris Grogan. Then we have Arthur Robinson describing the joy he gets from early mornings, dry stone walling. Finally, his near neighbour, Richard Park from Low Sizer Farm, on the satisfaction of hay time. Um, She'd moved away from London. She never liked living in London. She loved the area that she lived in. She was happy and content with William, her husband, and she loved the farming, and she was doing what she wanted to do. She could relate to other farmers. Yeah, she was well informed about a herd with sheep. A lot of the farmers respected her for that because yeah. um, they knew that she knew exactly what she was doing. If we go back to Troutbeck Park Farm, when she used that new drug to eliminate liver fluke, that raised her um, standing within the farming community. Um, it raised her up. A lot of them didn't really want to try it because it was probably too expensive to buy but she was willing to give it a go and and prove that it was worth worth doing yeah oh we can't see the road from here but the road into dent runs down and then it turns a dog leg down the valley and at hay time especially if the uh, weather had been bad and we were trying to catch bits of hay and we were still at school we used to stay off to help with hay time and we we had a truant officer that knew this and when we went to the hayfield all of us our mothers used to take a yellow duster with them from the dust in the furniture and if anybody saw this little gray morris car coming up the valley the (laughs) truant man's car the yellow duster would wave and you'd have a whole line of yellow dusters all the way up the hayfield and your mother used to go quick quick down to the house and you'd go and jump into bed and when he knocked at the door you'd go (coughs) (laughs) (laughs) how funny why do i do it i'm always up early Half past five, I'm down walling around 7am, do about five hours of walling every day. 
gets me out of the house and what more could you want than to come out in the early morning, sun shining, birds singing their little hearts out, deer in the field, hares, cock pheasant fluffing up his feathers and shouting at us because his, his two ladies are there and he wants to scare off the neighbouring uh, cock pheasant. But there's also the joy, the satisfaction of building a wall and then, yeah, I did that. Working on the farm is what I spend uh, the vast majority of my time doing. Things on a farm uh, do occasionally all come right, so it's very dependent on the weather. So it's summertime, we cut the grass for silage, and um, if the weather forecast is right and, you, and you've got that beautiful smell of drying grass and you get that uh, harvested in the pit and then that's that's such a satisfying feeling you know you're sort of safe for winter i think it's in your in your genes that uh, you know you've got to have enough food for your animals to carry them through the winter it's once described as like a a lifeboat that to me and you know, that being able to just enjoy have the pleasure in the work that i do right so i've challenged both of you to think about your favorite walks of 2022 John, let's start with you. How's your year of walking been? What's the highlight been for you? Uh, well, the, the, the highlight for me, I, I haven't had a very walky year, really. But <clears throat> I was talking earlier about the toxicity that walking can help purge out. As I approached the end of my last uh, editorial position, I felt a need to get rid of some of that. And so I, I, I took what was meant to be a two-day walk from uh, Ravenglass to Keswick. Um, hmm. So I took the train from home, uh, round to Ravenglass, which was uh, an absolutely delight in its in its own right, because it was during the heat wave we had this summer. Got off the train at Ravenglass, and who should I meet there but my old PE teacher? <laughs> it was absolutely what? remarkable. We haven't seen each other for, how old am I? 58, so I haven't seen him for 40 years. Exactly was he wearing his plimsolls? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so that was that was an absolute pleasure, and it kind of just put me in the right mood to start this walk. Okay, so we need to know the route then, don't we? You do. After I'd had a bit of a blether with Mr Davenport, um, <laughs> we went over Muncaster Fell. When I say we, I mean me. Muncaster Fell down into um, Estelle Green, and then I think I followed the same route that you did with George Kitchen, actually, up onto Ilgill Head. Oh, right. Oh, wow. right. You were at Dale. Yeah. Mitredale, over, up onto Ilgill Head, down over, to Wasdale. Over the, the screes. And my plan from there had been to uh, work my way round, ultimately, over some of the really high fells, Honister, Dale Head, across to Catbells, down to Keswick. But I just found my own fell fitness wasn't quite up to it. The weight on my back was too heavy because I was backpacking with a tent. Uh, but once I got down to Black Sail, I basically walked out along Ennerdale to Ennerdale Green and um, very fortunately my partner and the kids Steph and Jack and Sierra were camping on the coast so they came out and picked me up and uh, and I sacked off the last week of work and went camping instead with the family. Keswick remained in the Keswick, distance. I've never been there since. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear but you've you picked this as your favourite walk of the year John you presumably enjoyed it to some extent well it was a walk I felt I had to do I had to I had to get it out of my system it, it kind of marked the end of my tenor in that post that I alluded to earlier and um, 
So it was like a watershed moment for me. And right, yeah. despite the fact that uh, it hurt and I was unfit and I didn't get the route done that I wanted to do, I just loved it to bits. Mm. Part of that was the magic of the people I met along the way in different circumstances. There was an American gentleman walking the coast to coast. Mm. He'd planned to do it before the pandemic with his wife. Um, and unfortunately, his wife had passed away in those two years. So he was now walking the coast to coast with her ashes. Uh, which was so touching. And so he was choked up as he, as he was telling me this story. It's the pattern that I have when I'm walking. I cannot but stop and talk to somebody. Yeah. You're breaking into somebody else's world, a bubble, but you're sharing a moment with them which can be quite remarkable. It becomes a whole patchwork quilt, doesn't it, that mm. makes up your story, but you've got little bits mm. of everybody's yeah. stories that you're sharing and you're dipping into the... Yeah, and the people words. are much more open when they're on the fell. There's a kind of gravitas to some of the conversations you end up having on the fell that, that feel quite resonant and honest and... Mm people are really very open sometimes aren't they so that you get these stories it's about a fellowship it's yeah. a fellowship it's a... and nearly every encounter you have is a positive one yeah mm. and yeah. that helps drive out those toxins so right. much faster there's a bit of a restoration in faith of humanity isn't exactly. there without being too yes. grandiose about it i mean i certainly found that on all of my long walks you come back thinking actually the, the world's quite a good place yeah it's Which great, is, you need that reminder every now and then. It's a great social leveller as well. You can be up high and somebody can come from a very exotic lifestyle. Well, you can't tell what people's backgrounds are, so yeah. you're starting from scratch with people. Well, it's interesting going out with Dave because he, his over-trousers look like... <laughs> they're in tatters. Are we in, are we in summer wine country now? <laughs> I, I always take with me. When I see him out there, I try to look as scruffy as I can, but Dave always beats me on scruffiness. <laughs> I think unless there's holes in the midriff, you should probably just keep the trousers, shouldn't you? <laughs> I was picked on by another walking magazine many years ago. They, uh, they were trying to define different types of walker. In these different categories, uh, they used a photograph of me. <laughs> just for this one, yeah. and this, the category was called gummage. Right. Wurzel gummies, because <laughs> in their in their eyes, I'm the scruffy article out there, you know, the honest <laughs> man in the hills. Absolutely, I think we should be proud of that. That that's the kind of heritage that I'm aiming to capture. The proper ramblers of old, <laughs> us gummages should stick together. Yeah, absolutely. I've had some wonderful walking uh, trips this year. Well, because I tend to get involved with some projects or other, and for countryside. I seem to have been working a whole year doing an Ambleside walking companion. But particular memories from this year, I, I led a couple of walks for the BMC Lake District Group, camping at Turner Hall in the Dudden, and went up Heart of Fell. Uh, probably my favourite walk that I did was going over Lingmore Fell, which is such a modest little fell. Uh, and then as I got over the top of the summit, I met an elderly couple, well, people my age, <laughs> who were absolute devotees of Country Stride. I thought, wow! wow. <laughs> a rare moment indeed. You discovered the only listeners. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And if you're listening, folk, I can't remember your name, uh, it was a joy to meet you. It's my pick now, and I'm picking Scarfell from Brother Ilkeld, which I kind of bang on about this all the time, but I think it has to be the supreme walk for wild country in the Lake District. I cannot see, well, I've not walked a better one. So you get that lovely initial walk into Upper Estdale, carry on up to Great Moss, 
there's nothing else like that in the lakes. Not that level of drama, I don't think. Cam Spout, which is a, a scramble, right? And then you go into that gully on route to Fox's Tarn, a second scramble. I mean, this is a walk in kind of six parts. All of them hold the attention. All of them fell walkers delight. And then Scarfell's summit itself, you know, fabulous view, not least across the coast. You know, there's nothing else that way to stand in the way. It's got everything. It's an ambitious day out. You know, this is not something you lead uh, somebody who's new to fell walking up, clearly. But I think in terms of the Lake District, it has that element of wildness that I'm not convinced you get anywhere else. I was just going to say, that is, if you want to call it a wild Lake District, that is just about the wildest area. We've talked about it before in terms of how it should really have an extra tier of protection. Yeah. As a wilderness reserve, or, yes. or it's the great, the great escape esque. Yeah, it's, it's just so. <laughs> I love the South Ridge of Esk Pike, for example. It's mm. largely grass, but there's some rocky bits. But you're in the midst of it all. There, you're right, David. It's an absolutely magical way up of Lakeland Fell. And uh, of course, if you go up from the spout, you can follow the ridge. There's a Cam Spout Ridge and a ret. Right. Which even ordinary walk can get up if they're bold enough. Is that right? It's about okay. a long green. Yeah, yeah. And of course, from that side as well, Scarfell Pike itself is obviously not a single fell. Yeah. It is the Pike's Ob, isn't it? Uh, Scarfell Pike always meant the lesser of the two. Mm, that's yeah. why it's called the pikes of Scorfell. it's just when the ordnance survey came along and started measuring things they realised actually this is higher <laughs> yeah. Yeah. it comes back to Wainwright to some extent doesn't it because Broad Crag and Ill Crag are every bit fabulous mountains but just don't get any I mean I suppose it's because there aren't any obvious ascents they are well defended rock tops and mm. they are little laterals even when you come up from Calf Cove along the mm. ridge Getting onto Broad Crag doesn't feel right somehow, but you can get onto Ill Crag and that's comfortable. It's a nice little summit. There is no actual ascent that belongs to it, and that's probably the definition that Wainwright employed. And I rather employed that with my own. That's why he's able to bring in something like High Hearts Up Dodd as an individual fell, because you actually do go up to it. But there again, it's actually an ascent to another summit. So do you have Scarfell Pike? as in the three pikes, as one fell as well, then? Scorfell Pike is one, yeah, and Ill Crag and Broad Crag. Can't remember how I linked them together, because they're part of a Great End, and they're, but they're not really part of Scorfell Pike, are they? No. This is the thing, right? If Great End is considered an entity in itself, there really isn't any logical reason why the other two aren't. No. That's no. the issue you've got, I think. Yeah, you've got Round Howe below them, at the head of the Get Greeter there, which, if you're doing the Nuttalls, is a separate fell. Uh, right, we're going a little bit off topic there. And then very briefly, I asked you for your highlight moment from the fells of 2022. So this could be a sunset, a view, a time with somebody, whatever you pick. Um, I'm pick- I'll go first this time. I'm picking... The moment that you come below Kirby Fell and Ryloaf Hill on the Dales Highway to enter the valley below Greta Scar and Atomaya Scar, completely otherworldly. This is your neck of the woods. So this is just yeah. above Settle, isn't it? And yeah. wow, I mean, partly because I'd not been there before down that particular route, but you just overtop the valley there and suddenly you're in this incredible landscape. 
kind of breathtaking. It feels so. very complex, doesn't it? And oh, yeah. it, to me, it makes me think of the Dolomites. It's a proper wow moment. It's only kind of, what, five minutes walk out of Settle? Yeah. It's extraordinary. Yeah. Mm. So that's mine. Uh, Mark, next. Right, well, uh, the humble one of uh, Red Screes going up the... what? It's like an outgang that goes up the South Ridge. And you get the summit crowded out with people. But just to the east of it, just a step down, 50 feet down to your right on the east side of it, there's this little rocky knot. I climbed it years ago when I did the first research for the My Fell Ranger. You can stand on that spot and see the traffic going down the pass and look down to Patterdale and the distant fells there towards Ellswater. It's like a little sentry spot. So you can sit in the rocks there nestling mm. like a throne king of all he surveys while he's sat on his throne <laughs> john your well, magic moment from the fells of 22 magic well i'm actually going to take us out of the fells if that's all right oh, yeah okay i yeah. think you're allowed to do that for the last few weeks i've been working for the england coast path team who are establishing the new long distance uh, national trail around the entire english coastline uh, which is going to be around 2700 miles which is about pacific crest trail length right one of my colleagues, um, Ange Harker, and myself had a site visit to Millam and Haverig a few weeks ago. And these are areas that are completely new to me. I've never really explored the Cumbrian coast except for Arnside and Silverdale, which are close to home. Looking out across the Dudden estuary, the bird life there was just mm. spectacular. Bird life is one of the things that drew me into the outdoors when I was uh, a young teenager when we went to Loch Garten in the Cairngorms to watch the osprey there. And just standing there at Millam, on what are basically old pulverised slag heaps, mm. which are nevertheless becoming a bird breeding habitat, and looking out across the estuary, there were egrets, a kingfisher flew right past us, there were geese, swans, all sorts of wonderful waders, um, but there was a murmuration. Mm. It was something I hadn't experienced before. I've seen murmurations of starlings, I've, I've stood mm. beneath a million starlings and been, can you use the phrase, shut upon from a great height? I think that's fine. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Out across the estuary, there was a murmuration of not. Now, I hadn't realised that other birds do this murmuring or murmurating. Mm. I'm not sure what the phrase is even. <laughs> when the starlings turn, you get different shades of black, don't you? And those you wonderful shapes. When they're not turn, they turn from black to white <coughs> and black to white and white to black. And it's quite magical. And that, to me, was just like uh, a true magical moment of this of this year. We went down to Millam with David Cooper uh-huh. to look at Norman Nicholson, and we went on to the site of the Spelter Works there. You're conscious of that wonderful estuary. On that subject of that little bit of coastline and Norman Nicholson, it reminds me of one of my favourite quotes, which comes from one of his poems his sea to the west and he's got it on his uh, gravestone actually that you can find in Millen and he's got this lovely line let my eyes at the last be blinded not by the dark but by dazzle isn't that something yeah and what he's talking about there is these incredible sunsets that you get over the estuary and of course you know he was a man of Millen who barely left it really dominated by Black Coombe a vision of this incredible light fading down over the Irish Sea. Absolutely fabulous. Right, let's move on to farming and the mounting challenges on Cumbrian farmers. Uh, In this next selection of clips, first up we have Lee Schofield giving a historic perspective of sheep farming. 
and its increasingly fractured economics. Next up is farmer Amy Bateman, author of 40 Farms, a book that I published this year confronting the brutal reality of the end of the basic payment scheme and the lack of a strong farming voice in Westminster. Next we have Alison Park from Low Size of Barn on subsidies and how DEFRA cannot have both quality food produced in the UK and cheap food from abroad. Finally, we're back to Lee on finding common ground between environmentalists and farmers. You know, the reason that we've got sheep in such big numbers in this country is because historically they were the bearers of fleece and meat. And when the fleeces stopped having a value, in a sane world, the production of sheep would have dropped massively. But that happened at a time when government money was being poured in to support hill farming operations. So it sort of decoupled farmers from those basic market forces of supply and demand. And so sheep have continued to be produced. And for a period after the Second World War, you know, farmers were paid per head of livestock. So the economically rational thing for them to do was increase those numbers as much as they could and claim as much of that farming subsidy. And we're still dealing with the legacy of those subsidies. So they don't exist anymore. Subsidies are different, but it still had a real legacy. And because it's played out over such a long period of time, People can't really remember what it was like before that government funding messed everything up, frankly. Mm. Um, So it's only the government support that that kind of keeps these farms operational. And as those farming subsidies and farming payments are changing and and reducing, farmers are going to be hugely vulnerable. You know, there's a very real chance that that a lot of them are just going to go bust. We've got quite a few farms that I cover in my book that um, are very honest and say that they're farming in a way they feel they ought to farm for the landscape, for nature, for wildlife, and yet they are really struggling to make any money. And when those subsidies are withdrawn completely, what are they going to do? How are they going to manage? And why should these great big landowners kick off the farms and get paid to plant a load of trees? You know, that's not producing food either. So it's going to be challenging future ahead for quite a lot of them. Farmers have such a very small voice. They're a minority group. There's 470,000 people employed in this country in farming, fisheries and forestry. So if you take the fishery and forestry out, it's just a very small group of people. Collectively, we don't have a huge voice. Until we can try and educate those voices and get them to the people who are buying our food, where do we go? I just can't see how... Farmers are not going to make it without a change in the whole system of food production and food purchasing. And we talk about subsidy and subsidies coming to an end for farmers, which have been a really important part of their annual income. But that subsidy is, isn't it just a a subsidy to the consumer, to the citizen who's making active choices about where they spend their money on food? And I know that many of us are a lot more privileged than many others in this broken food system that we can afford to look at where our foods come from and who's made it and who's produced it and what are the ethics and the values that we wanted to go into that food that we're eating and that food is keeping us alive and keeping us nourished and keeping our local area healthy. That's a really important consideration. I I think there's so much opportunity to change the whole market for food. But DEFRA can't have it both ways. DEFRA can't have excellent food from farms that are held to high standards in this country and then let in global commodities that are produced to whatever standards suit the nation that produces them. That You can't have it both ways. And uh, our, I think our citizens in this country deserve better 
when I started in the job nine years ago, I don't think I really appreciated quite how controversial the RSPB taking on a couple of hill farms was going to be. Um, and yeah, I've suffered my fair share of, of, of quite challenging conversations about the need for change. You know, the Lake District is such a, a special place to so many people to say that maybe all is not quite as good as it could be is a, is a really difficult conversation to have. And particularly so with somebody for whom this is their working landscape. This is where they make their livelihood. Um, so to suggest that, that change is needed um, has, yeah, brought me you know, face-to-face with people who think that change absolutely isn't needed and things must stay as they are. I've had my fair share of, of meetings with neighbouring landowners and, you know, our MP was very critical, various farming organisations writing letters and complaining about what we're doing. And part of that is, I think, just that fear of the unknown, thinking that what we're doing here is what we want to see happen absolutely everywhere. And yes, we want to see the whole landscape become richer for wildlife, but we're not saying that we've got all the answers and that everybody must massively reduce sheep numbers and replace them with cattle and block up every single ball and drain and re-wiggle every river because you know that just isn't going to happen and it's not going to work in every valley and for every person so i think that the way that we've tried to tackle it is is increasingly as we talk about what we're doing here making it clear that what we're doing here is to suit our particular context another big way that i've tried to sort of cope with those sort of challenging situations is rather than thinking of the farming community as one great big monolithic thing which it just isn't it's made up of people with a huge range of different views and opinions taking the time to get to meet people face to face and chatting with them and finding that that you know actually there's a lot more that kind of unites us than divides us with almost everybody mark's choice now this is steve dickinson arriving at the hogback memorial stones in gosforth church yeah these are as important as the cross we've just looked at Mm-hmm. in the church they were found as footings for some of the walls of the original church here when the church was rebuilt in the right. 19th century but these are called hogback tombstones you can see there's an element of a kind of the back of a pig they're made out of red sandstone like the cross outside and they're approximately not quite two meters long but just short of two meters certainly the ones that you're looking at they're absolutely massive and also they're extraordinarily finely worked they're traditionally called tombs or tombstones because they were supposed to be found with people who were buried near them or underneath them. Mm-hmm. But only one of these, of about maybe 40 that are known in northern England and Scotland, only one has ever been found in association with a burial. There we go. That's uh, Steve Dickinson there, Mark, in wonderful Gosford Church. Why, why did you pick that little clip? Well, I find the whole notion of the Vikings who came here, as Steve said, in about 900 AD... An amazing bit of history, and we have so little record, nothing written down, basically, Mm. and all we've got are these crosses and these hogbacks, as they call them, and still they're a mystery. Mm. Everything that occurred before the Norman Conquest didn't get written down and recorded in a properly ordered way. You've got this idea that the Vikings came and marauded and pillaged and had no moral compass or whatever. But these crosses show they had a passion for place. And these hogbacks that were always associated with gravestones of some sort actually were great statements of one person's esteem in society and they show the building the great hall house that they lived in and so all these hogsbacks are a statement of this period in time from about the 800s to the 1000 AD. 
what I found quite emotional about that podcast was that we visited two different um, crosses. The first one in Gosforth um, and the second in... Erton. Yeah, and what you saw between these two is effectively the ending of the Viking way of life. The first one in Gosforth, you see all the Norse myths and legends inscribed on this incredible cross. And there's this sense of this really full world. And I mean, as you will know, the Norse kind of venerated the natural world. So their gods lived in the mountains and the trees are really important. I mean, this is Tolkien writ large, right? And then you get to the next cross and it's all gone. And it's effectively a, a Christian cross. Yeah. And there's this feeling that all the old gods have died. And of course, Christianity won, which is why we're not venerating the trees now. They coexisted for a while. That was the interesting thing. And that's what that first cross shows, because it has both Christian mythology on it and Norse. But by the time you get to the, the tail end of their prominence in Cumbria, and I suppose we're talking more widely, yeah, Christianity wins. Yeah, and you get the same, if you go to look at Roman sites, there you have these Mithraeums, and then there's evidence of very early Christian churches within a Roman fort. Like mm. at Vindolanda, there's evidence. So you've got this transition uh, that they represent as well. This is another one, 600 years later, when the Vikings made that transition. Right, we're coming towards the end of our roundup of the year, and now for a tiny bit more politics. So, if you don't like that kind of thing, then mute us for the next few minutes. We ask our guests what one thing they would do for the landscapes, people, and heritage of Cumbria uh, if they were made prime minister uh, for a day. And it's not often we get exactly the same reply, and it's very rare that we get the same reply on consecutive weeks. Um, but they're both bang on. So here's Steve Dickinson, followed by Ian Francis, and then our own Mark Richards, not mincing his words, answering the question, what would you do if you were made Prime Minister for the day? Well, it's already a World Heritage Site, and we've all got to recognise that. So if I was the Prime Minister of the day, I'd make absolutely sure that this and other national park landscapes in this remarkable country get the funding and the assistance that they need so that they can be looked after for future generations. I think restoring the funding to the uh, Lake District National Park Authority to what it was 10 years ago would be a start. It will be monumental. I mean to say, how do people expect this national park to be cared for Mm. on the poultry tapering down there is now? We don't normally talk about politics on Country Strike, but honestly, that is a horror story. Our penultimate set of clips, we're rewinding the clock till long before we had our first national park and the days of the Pac-Man. And two lovely clips detailing the transition from the heyday of the pack pony with Libby Robinson to the start of the railway age with Peter Rook. This being a very rugged, wild region, the ponies became a tool to all the economics. The ruggedness of it meant that the ponies could surf and navigate the region. When you became, say, into the Middle Ages, uh, the biggest economic product was wool. The ponies became the pack pony. The pack pony, it's really quite a lost area in history, this. Little is known about the Pac-Man and the drover's roads. We go back to Tudor times of the the great wealth of Furness Abbey. Mm -hmm. 
There was the uh, growth of agricultural systems, the building of the stone walls. The ponies became the transport. They carried so many different merchandises. So there would have been wool, lead, copper, zinc. They would have carried even the slate at the slate mines. They would have been the link between each transportation depot. They would have travelled in groups of 20 ponies, all loose-headed. The front pony would have had a bell on it. Right. Um, and the drover, single-man drover, would, they would travel up to 20 miles per day. When the canals came in, they took over from pack horses and mules for the carrying of goods. Canals were, were very good at carrying large weights around the country. And because they're supported by water, it didn't take a lot of effort. When the railways came, of course, they could do a similar job, but they could do it a lot quicker. It was all about speed, getting things to market as soon as possible, and that's when uh, the fishing industry really blossomed because we'd be catching huge quantities of fish in the North Sea and they could get it down to the restaurants in London within the day. Right, we're nearing the end of the podcast now. I will ask you, as I did last year, about New Year's resolutions. John, do you do, you do such things? Can I have a minute to think about that? You can, Mark. Up until this year, I've been on the habit of getting out first thing in the morning before I have my breakfast and before I have my porridge and going for a walk, but I haven't done it this year in the same way. Mm-hmm. So that definitely is back on the cards. You so know. this is a pre-breakfast walk, is it? A pre-breakfast walk. So that you've actually, the it first thing you've nice. done in the day, and if you talk to people like Eric Horner, the farmer friend I know, he goes out and milks the cows before he has his first cup of tea. Up at six, straight out, milks the cows, comes in, uh, and when I was farming, that was the thing. He went out before he had any kind of refreshment. Uh, so I, I have to reinvent that. And the other one thing is, I managed this year to take my eldest grandson, Rory, who is uh, 14 tomorrow, uh, I took him up Sheffield Pike and he loved it. And mm. it'll stay with him forever, that first memory of looking over Earl's Water. So I want to take my youngest grandson, Rowan, I want to get him up the local fell, Talking Fell. So I must get him up there. That'll be a marvellous day for Rowan. Uh, he probably won't remember it, but he'll know we've been up there with Grandpa, and that means everything to me. <laughs> and for my middle grandson, uh, Rufus, he missed out on the climb up the fell, so I will be taking Rufus up, probably up Talking Fell, when he comes for Christmas. That's rather nice. Can't you make him a bit emotional here, Mark? Oh. I don't like that. Jo- John, <laughs> get, get us back onto uh, safe territory. Safe territory. I think I've probably made... Have I made the same New Year's resolution every year, which is basically just to get out and do more fell walking? But mm. I think on the, on the basis of today's conversation... I definitely need to get another long-distance trail under my belt. Ooh, I like it. It's been a few years since I've completed one. What, what are you eyeing up? The England coast path will be lovely. It's not completed yet, although lots of people have walked around the coast. It's a difficult conversation to have with your... miles yeah. six months. <laughs> all those pubs en route. It's not like the Pacific Crest Trail. It'd be more of a pub crawl, wouldn't it? I mean, that would be a good pub crawl. Yeah, yeah. And get the kids away from the screens by dragging them up fells... Um, I like your idea of, of getting up in the morning and doing a walk before breakfast as well. We've, we've got a, a neighbour who gets up every morning and milks a thousand goats before breakfast. So, um, <laughs> that would get my goat, I'm should, sure. Maybe I should go and uh, help him out a bit more. Yeah. Well, thank you, Mark. Uh, thank you, John. Thanks for coming for the fourth time. 
Thank you ever so much. A final clip then to see us into 2023 and a lovely bit of all Cumbrian banter between dialect champions Gene Scott-Smith and Donald Angus, who we heard from at the start, as they roll out their favourite Cumbrian insults. Thanks for joining us in 2022. Do sign up to our newsletter for a special announcement about our 100th birthday walk and celebrations. And we'll see you again in 2023. And when it comes to that rich vein of insults that humanity is famous for, how does a Cumbrian get to grips with one another? What's fetched a good love like Vitamus? Well, those talking a lot of waffle has. That's what those talking. Those are Baldiskite as well. That's a Baldiskite. Right. I don't think I is. Ah, when boil your head. Boil Boil your head. (laughs) Translation. Whatever have you turned up at my house for? And I said, you're a Baudiskite to know. So that's a chatterbox. A chatterbox. Oh, Baudiskite. A bladderskite. A bladderskite. That's right. That sounds better. I understand that.